0: Paralegals are highly essential, from law firms and courtrooms to insurance, real estate, HR, and more. If a paralegal career or law school is in your future, Stevenson University Online's Bachelor's in Legal Studies will help you achieve your goals affordably with no application fee. 100% online, approved by the American Bar Association, with new online sessions starting every eight weeks. Get started today. Visit stevenson.edu paralegal what is a Fisher House? By the numbers, Fisher House has served more than 430,000 military and veteran families at no cost to them.
1: All I had to do was focus on caring for my son.
0: Those families have saved more than $547 million to date by staying in
2: Fisher House. My family would not have been able to afford to come stay.
0: Over 11 million days and nights of lodging has helped so many.
2: It was like a gift from God. Now
0: on the road to 100 Fisher Houses. Go to FisherHouse.org to see how you can help. Fisher House
1: Welcome and thank you for joining us. We're joined by our head of legal research, George Pelsa, as well as Jelica Thotterum, a senior legal researcher. They were the ones who will be taking us through the legalities and consequences pertaining to marriage. I will now hand over the floor to George and Jelica to get the conversation started.
2: Over to you.
0: Thank you, Matibiso.
2: Thank you so much, Matabisa, and welcome. This is quite an important topic for anyone who is planning on getting married, and it happens quite regularly in practice that people get married not always understanding the legal consequences of how they got married, or they only realize the impact a day or two before their marriage and then wonder if it is too late to get all of the requirements and formalities dealt with in time. Unfortunately, we do not have the time to go into too much detail as we can easily spend a few days on this topic alone. However, the aim is to go over the basics of what a legal marriage is, as well as the consequences of that marriage, especially in the respect of sharing of assets and liabilities. We will also highlight some timeframes that must be kept in mind before getting married. You may be planning your wedding or know someone who is about to get married. So with that background in mind, we are going to look at the type of marriages in South Africa, as well as the requirements for these valid marriages. What happens with assets and liabilities during the marriage, as well as touch a little bit on cohabitation. So with this background in mind, I'm handing over to Jerika who will address the different types of marriages with you guys. Over to you, Jelly.
0: Thank you, George. I think a good starting point is actually to discuss first what types of marriages we have in South Africa, then we can have a better understanding of, of the differences and the requirements for each one. The first type of marriage we have is a civil marriage is legally recognised and that's in terms of the Marriage Act and this can only take place between a man and a woman. The next type of marriage we have is a customary marriage. This is recognised by the Customary Marriages Act and this can be entered into between a man and a woman and must be negotiated and celebrated according to the customs and traditions of that community, so of the man and the woman. The next type of marriage we have is a a it's a civil union and this is a legally recognised in terms of the Civil Union acts. This can be entered into between two persons and it doesn't necessarily have to be a man and woman, so it does include same-sex spouses. And the last type we have is a religious marriage, which is only partly recognised and receives limited protection from the law. This type of marriage is entered into, uh, in accordance with Muslim, Hindu, or any other religious rights that applies to the husband and the wife. We will later look more closely at each of these marriages. Um, But for now, George is gonna take us through the requirements for a valid
2: marriage. Okay, so thanks, Jelika. Um, Yes, you mentioned that there are these marriages that are um, recognized in South Africa. And with that, I also just want to add in that aspect, in the respect of, you know, it's formally recognized in South Africa, and it has some legal consequences automatically applying to that. For example, as soon as you're married, in terms of one of those recognized um, marriages, you have a legal duty to support each other. Um, And as Jelica mentioned as well, that religious marriages are partly recognized, so they do not have the full recognition of uh, one of the other marriages, but in respect of maintenance, for example, It does. The maintenance act specifically includes religious marriages for that as well. So they also will have a duty to support each other in terms of South African law. But when we look at the requirements, every recognized marriage has its own requirements. However, the most requirements are as follows. So they have the similar requirements and the first one would be consent. So when we look at consent, both parties to this marriage must be able to consent to this marriage, to agree to this marriage so that they enter into this marriage willingly and freely. Um, For example, if you have someone who uh, suffers from dementia or Alzheimer's and they don't have that mental capacity to actually agree to this marriage, that marriage will not be valid due to the fact that they will not consent from both of the parties. The second requirement we're looking at relates to age. As a general requirement, all parties to a marriage must be 18 years or older. In some um, exceptions to the rule, it is possible for minors to get married with the permission of their parents as well. So the third um, requirement we're looking at is lawfulness and what this relates to is the fact that the marriage must be entered into such a way that it is lawful and there are certain exclusions. For example, you can only have one marriage at a time. If you have two marriages, the second marriage will not be a lawful marriage or a valid marriage. Another um, lawfulness aspect that can be taken into account is the fact of blood relations and the various legislation deals with it in respect of a certain um, uh, relations that are not allowed to get married to each other for example a brother and a sister. The fourth um, requirement we're going to look at is formalities. Formalities deal with the manner in which the marriage is entered into um, at the ceremony for example. So you will have one of the formalities would include that there must be a marriage officer at the uh, present at the marriage or at the wedding and it must be done in the presence of excuse me in the presence of two witnesses so those are some of the formalities that must be taken into account and then the last um, requirement we're looking at is the registration of the marriage at the department of home affairs and this is basically sealing the deal making sure that you get your marriage certificate in order for you to be able to prove that your marriage is indeed valid so it's it's all of these requirements that must be taken into taken into account to ensure that your marriage is valid. And these are all important because it's some of these um, requirements must be taken into account before you actually get married. Um, and make, and uh, necessary arrangements must be made in order for all of these requirements to be complied with. So with this in mind, I quickly want to also focus a little bit more extra on customary marriages. Because apart from the age and consent and lawfulness aspects and requirements as similar with the other marriages as well. The, customary marriages also deal with the custom and tradition. And the recognition of customary marriages specifically say that a customary marriage must be entered into in terms of the custom and traditions of the bride and the groom. And there's no setting stone requirements in this instance. And the courts have taken some requirements into account in the past. So one of some of those are that the marriage must be negotiated and there must be an agreement in terms of the marriage and, for example, Lobolo as well. Then the second requirement that they can look at is the fact that if there was an agreement about lobola, that the lobola must be either transferred in full or partly transferred. They will also look at the different traditional ceremonies and the exchange of gifts if if it's applicable in terms of a custom and the handing over of the bride and the integration of the bride into the groom's family. So these are some of the requirements and with customary marriages where the uh, where it sometimes it becomes a little bit difficult to establish whether the marriage was indeed valid is due to the fact that not all customs uh, and cultures have the same requirements when it comes to the celebration and the entering into the marriage. So those are just some of it and again, something that you have to take into account before you decide on how you want to get married and just to make sure that everything is in place. So Jenica will just quickly explain a little bit more on customary marriages because there some exclusions to the general rule that specifically applies only to customary marriages as well
0: thank you george i think when we look at customary marriages we need to look at um uh, is the marriage valid or not um this comes into play where there's more than one marriage there can be monogamous marriage this is a type of marriage that's only entered where a man has one wife so he only has one wife at a time polygamous marriages um, where the husband takes more than one wife. Um, for this to be valid, there has to be an application made to the High Court. So, the man is already in one marriage and he wants to take a second wife, he will have to make an application to the High Court and there must be a written contract stating how the property of the marriage uh, or marriages will be regulated. And then we have the registration of the marriage, which must be done within three months after his conclusion. Um, registration will serve as a proof that the marriage did actually take place. However, uh, if you do not register your marriage, this does not invalidate it. However, to avoid avoid further disputes, especially where there are more than one marriages or marriage, um, it is advisable that the marriages are registered.
2: Yes, I agree with you, jelica It is quite important to make sure that your marriage is registered because it does happen so often that. You know, when in a marriage where there's in a polygamous marriage, for example, where the husband passes away, then it, it, it happens that there are maybe more than one woman coming forward and saying that we are married in terms of customary marriage. And it becomes quite difficult to try and establish whether that marriage was indeed valid or if all the requirements have been met as well. So if the marriage has been registered and if there was a necessary application to the high court and the contracts were in place, then it does make the, the disputes at the later stage so much easier to resolve and less as well. So with that in mind, um, and as Jerika said, that it is not necessary for the marriage to be registered because the um, legislation says that without the registration, it does not invalidate the marriage. The marriage still remains valid. But it is important to register, and we're quickly going to look at how to register the customary marriage. And it touches on Yolandi's question that she just asked us now, where do you register the marriage? And we're going to look at that quickly now. So with a um, customer managers, if you want to register, this is the procedure that you can follow. Both of the spouses can go to the Department of Home Affairs. Um, that will be the first step. And then at when, what you have to do is you have to complete a form known as the BI 1699 form. And then you will have to take, the spouses will have to take copies of their identity, doc, identity documents, as well as if there was an agreement regarding the to take that agreement with them as well then there must be one witness, each on the bride's and the groom's family, because as you remember, we said that it's part of the formalities of a valid marriage is that it must be in the presence of two witnesses. And then you can also take family representatives with you to Home Affairs to establish whether this marriage was indeed valid or not before they issue you with a marriage certificate. So there might be some of you actually who has a customary marriage, but may not have registered it yet or you know someone who's, who has not registered it yet it is still possible it doesn't invalidate the marriage without the registration but it is quite important because that marriage certificate is your proof to actually show that this marriage is valid and was independent.
0: so with that i just have we have a few examples to discuss
2: hmm.
0: the first example is so john and mary got married in 2000 this was a civil marriage But then John also married Trabiso in 2010, and this was a customary marriage. Are these marriages valid or is one of them valid?
2: So as I said in the beginning, with one of the requirements being lawfulness, you can only have one marriage at a time. So you, you cannot enter into a second marriage if there's another marriage in place, except for the exclusion of polygamous marriages in customary law. But in this example, when we look at this, John was married in terms of a civil marriage with Mary. So that was a valid marriage. It was entered into in 2000. Every marriage after that would be invalid because there's already a valid marriage in place, unless he, in the meantime, divorced from Mary and that marriage is not in place anymore, or she passed away, for example. So in this example, Angelica, to answer you, the only valid marriage in this example will be the one with John, between John and Mary entered into 2000 as the first marriage in place.
0: Okay, George, but what if John married Mary in 2000 and this was a customary marriage and then after that, in 2005, he married Nabiso, also another customary marriage, so two customary marriages.
2: So this will be, will be forming part of one of the examples of a polygamous marriage, for example. So as we saw that with the recognition of customary marriages, actually can have more than one customary marriage with two different partners, but there are certain requirements that must be taken into account. For example, as you said, the application to the High Court and the contract dealing with proprietary consequences. So with that in mind, then we look at this example and both of these marriages can be valid because they're both customary marriages and it is allowed in terms of customary law. So both of these marriages are valid if John complied with all the regulations in, in, in that respect. Hey, George,
0: what if John married Mary in 2000, a customary marriage, but then he, they also got married under in under civil marriage in 2001 so to the same person but a customary marriage and a civil marriage
2: so with this example i think what's important to notice that it's different from the previous examples in the previous examples there were two different wives in place so you know it was two, two different partners but in this case john is marrying mary again under a different marriage. So they first got married in terms of customary law, and then they entered into a civil marriage. And the recognition of customary marriage act does say that it is allowed in these instances where you marry the same partner. So in this instance, there will be one marriage between John and Mary.
0: And the last example, George, John married Mary in 2000, a customary marriage. They did not register the marriage. And then he married Abiso in 2005, and this was a civil marriage. Which marriage is valid or are both of them valid
2: or invalid for them? So I think what's important here to note is that I think the, the trick here is the fact that the marriage was not registered. And the, what I want to highlight here is just again the fact that even though the marriage is not registered, it doesn't mean that the marriage was invalid. So in this example, if that initial customary marriage with Mary was done according to the customs and traditions and it's, it complies with all the requirements under the Recognition of Customary Marriages Act, it will be considered as a valid marriage, whether it's registered or not, which means that was the first marriage. So the second marriage with kabiso in 2005 will be an invalid marriage. Um, so the main rule here is you have to look at the first marriage person, whether that was a valid one. If it was indeed a valid one, all subsequent marriages after that will be invalid, except for polygamous marriages. So what we're going to go into a little bit, and you all might have heard about these terms in community, out of community, with accrual, without accrual. So, so Jenica will start us off with just explaining what are the different types of marriages that we can enter into in South Africa in respect of property.
0: So how, how are the assets and liabilities shared or distributed during the marriage? This will be regulated by the marital regime of the marriage. You can either be married in community of property or you can be married out of community of property. And without of community of property, you can have either have the accrual system or not have the accrual system applied. But first, we're gonna look at a marriage in community of property. And basically, this means what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. So everything is shared, it's a it's a joint estate, basically. Um, all assets and liabilities are merged into one. That means whatever you had before the marriage, the spouses have before the marriage, all come and fall into the joint estate. There are a few exceptions that will apply. This includes requests that are made in the will, or property that is specifically excluded by maybe an anti-natural contract. And with community of property, um, consent also plays a very important part because certain transactions will require the consent of both spouses um such as buying property or or, or selling property all marriages are basically in community of property so this is the default position if no anti nuptial contract is entered into um, the marriage is automatically in community of property george will you be able to take us to an example of a community of property
2: yes i will jenica so i think what's important here to understand is that it's a joint estate so you will be sharing in undivided shares everything that you own. And I always use this example as if one of the spouses buys a TV, then technically half of that TV is owned by the other spouse as well. So in my mind, you, you basically cut everything into half because that's how the marriage in community of property works. So you jointly own everything. And unfortunately, you, all, you are also jointly liable for the debts of each other. So when we look at a quick example, Mr. X and Mrs. X, here. Mr. X has a million rand and Mrs. X has 500,000 rand. So when they get married, during the marriage, there will be one joint estate comprising all of that assets of 1.5 million. And then what's important is to think about what's going to happen at the end of this marriage. So at the end of this marriage, what will happen is they will divide this joint estate into two separate parts. And each of them will have 750,000 rand, if we use this example now. So I think this is the important part of a marriage in community of property is the fact that there's one joint estate and you're undivided share in all of the assets and liabilities in that estate. So that's the important thing to take here. So when we look at, when we take this and we compare it with a marriage out of community of property, and as Jenica mentioned, there are two types of marriages out of community of property without the approval or with the approval system. So we're quickly going to first look at without the approval system because that's the most simple one, I think, out of the two. So when we look at this, we can look at that image. There are two parties and the blue estate is separate from the green estate. And the, when we look at that quote, it says what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. And that's basically what it boils down to. There will be no joint estate in terms similar like at marriage in community of property. So the spouses will retain their separate estates during the marriage as well and that also means that they will not be liable for each other's debts during the marriage as well so and what should be important is as Jelica mentioned is that all marriages will automatically be in community of property where there's joint estate unless they enter into an anti contract so what should be taken into account here is that if you want to be married out of community of property with each having their own separate, uh, separate estates and not sharing then you'll have to enter into an antinuptial contract and we'll go into a little bit more detail soon. And then what should also be noted is that if you want it without the approval system, as we explained now, that just two separate states, you will have to also mention that specifically in the antinuptial contract. What's also important to note is that different from a marriage in community of property, a marriage out of community of property does not require that you need your spouse's consent to enter into certain transactions. So you are it's basically just two stability states, each with their own capabilities and, um, you know, legal capacity as well. So, Jerika, you can maybe take that same similar scenario we had with Mr. and Mrs. X and just maybe explain it in terms of this marriage out of community without the approval system.
0: As George mentioned, that um, out of community of property without the approval system is is very simple and straightforward. So, Mr. X has a, a 1 million Rand and Mrs. X has 500,000 Rand at the beginning marriage during the marriage um that's what it stays at um and at the end of the marriage so either so they're divorced and at the end of the marriage they will each retain whatever they came in with whatever they accrued so their estate will stay mr x at a million and mrs x at 500 so basically each party throughout the marriage and at the end of the marriage they retain their own estates
2: exactly as we can see there there was no merging of any um, joint estate they keep it kept it separately and that's the important part of this so now we're quickly going to look at the other part of a marriage out of community of property and that's with the accrual system um, so this is where it becomes maybe a little bit complicated and with a formula but what what it basically boils down to is that similar with the previous one where the accrual system did not apply it's still the same as what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours But the the spouses agree that we will share in the growth at the end of the marriage. So what that entails is that during the marriage, again, separate estates, separate liabilities as well. But once the marriage comes 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 to an end, either by divorce or death, for example, there's certain formula and calculations that will be done to establish whether one estate is liable to pay something to the other estate. So how that will be done is there are certain values that will be taken into account. So the first one will be the commencement value. So this is the value at the start of the marriage. And this will be properly set out from the beginning into under the anti contract as well. So the anti contract will set out what are the commencement values. So this can be either from we, the, the spouses agree that we, they will start off with nothing, or that they have some previous assets that they want to exclude and they can include that and say that we start the marriage off with 200,000 Rand, for example. What they will also take into account with this calculation is their true wealth. And that will be the net increase in a spouse's estate after the date of marriage. So how much did the spouse's estate grow during this marriage? And then the other um, calculation or amount that will be taken into account is the end value. And that's upon the death or divorce. And then what will be taken into account is the, What is the actual value at the end of this marriage? And then the simple calculation will basically be that to establish at this point what does the larger estate owe to the smaller estate so the basic rule is the larger estate must then transfer half of the difference between the growth of the two estates to the smaller estate so I do get that it is quite complicated and it can be a bit more complicated than we explain now as well but um what we should take into account is the fact that here the the point is just to establish how this the system works for one spouse to pay something over to another spouse in terms of the claim at the end of the marriage. So we're quickly going to look at as a quick example in this case. So we're sticking with Mr. and Mrs. X. Um, and in the beginning of their marriage, they said that they had nothing. So their beginning value, their commencement value is zero. At the end of the marriage, they saw that the values are a million rand and 500,000 rand respectively. So what the calculation is, is a basic calculation. How it will work out is so you take the value at the end of the marriage, which is a million and five hundred thousand rand. You will deduct the commencement value and other deductions that may be applicable. So in this case, it's zero. And then you will see that the accrual amount, that growth amount during this marriage. For Mr. X, his estate grew with a million rand. Mrs. a state grew with five hundred thousand rand. And then you will have to establish the difference between the growth. So unlike with a marriage in community of property, this is not thrown into one pool or into one pot and they share everything. We first have to calculate this. So the difference is that Mr. X's estate grew with 500,000 rand more than Mrs. X's estate. So that's the difference. And as we said in the previous slide as well, the basic rule is that the spouse with the smallest accrual, which is Mrs. X in this example, can claim half of the difference in the growth. And the difference is 500,000 rand and half of that is 250,000 rand, which means that at the end of this marriage, either by death or divorce, Mrs. X will have a claim against Mrs Mr. X's estate for 250,000 rand. So again, they don't share in anything. It's just that it's a claim at the end of the marriage for the smaller estate to get something on from the bigger estate. So when we look at this in the same manner as we did with the previous one. So we got Mr. X and Mrs. X in the beginning, zero, um, they had nothing in the marriage. As you can see, separate estates still, the blue estate is completely separate from the green estate. During the marriage, each of them grew their estates to a million and 500,000 $500, rand, still separately with each other. And then at the end of the marriage, again, separately separately from each other. but. Mr. Mrs. X had that claim against Mr. X for 250,000 Rand, which will then be transferred from his million Rand, for example, which at the end puts them at the same position in equal footing. But again, unlike a marriage in community of property, they do not share anything. There's no shared estates. There's no joint estate. There's no share in liability as well. So that's where the difference is. It's still completely separate, each owning their own estates. Uh, being liable for their own liabilities it's only at the end of the marriage that there's a claim that might be applicable so this is indeed something that you have to consider before you um, enter into your marriage because as we also said that without a community of property you have to enter into an anti-nuptial contract as one of the requirements for that if not then you are still married in community of property so Jenica will just quickly touch a bit on the some of the requirements that must be made with a marriage in community of
0: Okay, um, for antinatural contract. so the antinatural contract must be in writing. Um, So the parties must reduce to writing what they've agreed on, the commencement values, um, must be entered into before the marriage is concluded. As we mentioned um, before, if you don't enter into an antinatural contract, the the default position is the marriage is in community of property. So if you want an antinatural contract to be concluded, it must be done before the marriage. It must be executed before a notary and two witnesses, and it must be lodged um, with the relevant deeds office within three months of its execution. It must be registered. If it's not registered, then it will be of no force and effect against anyone who's not a party to the international contract.
2: Yes, so it's important also, as Jelica mentioned, that this is must be in writing. So you have to physically sign a piece of paper. This cannot be done electronically. And I know in the past year, a lot of documents and a lot of contracts are signed electronically, which is possible in some instances. But when we deal with an anti-nuptial contract, it is important that it's a physical document that must be signed. You cannot sign it digitally. So just to quickly recap as well, and this is quite important because you you cannot if you decide a day before your marriage that you want to be, be married under the um mari- as a marriage out of community of property it might be difficult as you will not have maybe enough time to actually get all of this in place because what is required is you'll have to find a notary and two witnesses this anti-nuptial contract must be drafted properly you know there's all of these factors that must be taken into account so this is something that you have to think about well in advance um before you can actually enter into this anti contract and then get married validly, because this must be done before you can get married. So I think with this in mind, um, Jelika, I think one other aspect that's also important to look into is the fact that what if you now are married in community of property, but you, you then realize that, oh, we actually wanted to be married out of community of property or, or otherwise, can you change your marital regime in this aspect?
0: Okay George, the simple answer is yes, you can change your marital regime, however an application to the High Court must be um, made and it's not as simple as just making an application and having the application granted, you have to provide um, sufficient reasons, legitimate reasons as to why the uh, marital regime needs to be changed. So a change of mind may not be sufficient enough for the court to grant your audience you can't just say, no, we've decided that we want to retain our own assets. There has to be sufficient reasons um, provided to the court for the application to be granted. Another consideration will, um, that has to be done is notice must be given to all creditors. So if the parties intend on changing their marital regime, they have to notify all the creditors. And um, another factor that the court will look at is that as, as prejudice it is just that the marital regime change of the
2: marital regime may cause to other parties. Thanks, Jelica. So yes, as Jelica said, it is possible to change it, but it's quite a daunting application and can be a bit costly as well. So this is why it is important to take all of this into account and decide on how you want to be married and make sure that everything is in place before you actually get married. Um, and with this in mind as well. And now we've quickly discussed the basis of marriages. But, you know, something that happens quite often Jennifer, is that people do not always get married. They do stay together in a long-term relationship, and which is known as cohabitation. And then also assuming that, you know, they are considered to be married. You know, we, we constantly hear about this term as a common law marriage, for example. Can you just quickly explain to us what is cohabitation?
0: Hey George, I think you're right. Lots of people have the misconception by just uh, thinking that by just living together in in a and uh, being in a long-term relationship that you're automatically in a common-law marriage. But this is actually incorrect. Um, basically, an unmarried couple living together in a long-term relationship which resembles a marriage is cohabitation and it's not afforded the same protection um, in terms of the law as a marriage. There can be a cohabitation agreement between the parties And this cohabitation, um, agreement is only enforceable between the parties and they can set out things like, um, should one party pay maintenance to the other party? Is there any joint property, um, that is jointly owned and who is responsible for what living expenses in the relationship? Now, this agreement is not, um, uh, uh, it's not necessary. It doesn't, you don't have to have one, but you may have one in, um, a cohabitation relationship.
2: And I think it's important to have such an agreement just to put everything in place, because with unlike a marriage, there's no formal, um, no formal liabilities or um, consequences that will apply to a cohabitation similar to a marriage, for example. So it is quite important to get that in place, and also just to note that this cohabitation agreement will only be applicable between the parties and not enforceable against third parties as well. So just to quickly, um, you know, summarize cohabitation in, the, in respect to marriage as well. So I think the first thing that we can look at here is the requirements. So, you know, cohabitation, there's no formal requirements because it's not something formally recognized in South Africa. So when we compare it to a marriage, there's, a marriage have all these uh, legal requirements and formalities that must be um, met. But a uh, cohabitation in the relationship does not have all of that. When we look at the legal consequences, as we mentioned earlier on that with a marriage, for example, some of the legal consequences are that there's a reciprocal reciprocal duty to support each other financially. But those automatic consequences that comes with a valid marriage does not always come with cohabitation. And you can regulate it to an extent in your cohabitation agreement, but it will not always be enforceable to third parties as well. So another thing just to mention here is And I've seen some questions, and we'll hopefully get to all of them later on, a lot of it about what should happen when somebody dies as well in respect of marriage. So in respect of a marriage, and if you were part of the webinar that we hosted last year on during World's Week, there's something called interstate succession. And in a marriage, if you die interstate without having a will, and your spouse is the only surviving um, person after you die, your spouse will inherit everything in in terms of interstate succession. So that's why it's important to have a will. But with cohabitation, seeing as you do not have that formal recognition as a marriage and the protection, you you can't expect that if you do not have a will and you pass away, that your partner will automatically inherit um, your estate. You will have to then, in, in respect of cohabitation, have a separate will, and this can also not be dealt with in the cohabitation agreement. When we deal with property management, as we saw now that With a marriage, we have in community of property, out of community of property, of how the property will be dealt with. But with cohabitation, there's also none of these automatic consequences. At most, you can consider a cohabitation relationship to be similar to a marriage out of community of property, which means that during this cohabitation relationship, both parties will have their own separate estates, will not share in any liabilities. And then when we deal with legal termination, um, just to compare the two as well, with marriage, you know in terms of the various legislation a marriage must be terminated through divorce if it's not terminated through death and with cohabitation there's no such formal termination requirements and you know you can just break up and there's no consequences of that which and no protection again under the law as well so jedica I don't know if you maybe want to add anything in this respect
0: no just George that it seems simple enough to be in a cohabitation However, obviously it's clear that it's simple, but however, you're not offered the same protection from the law as with a
2: marriage. Yes, thanks, Jelica, And I think Mata Biesel will join us asking these questions over to you, Matabiso.
1: Hi, thank you, George and Jelica. Thank you so much. Um, so the first question, if I'm married in community of property without accrual and I pass away without a will, Will the spouse be allowed to claim her share? And is it possible to exclude it other than having a will in place?
2: Um, I think with that one, been, so. it's important to note that with out of community of property and you do not have a will, we must remember that with interstate succession, they, they, they look at just that you are married. They don't always look necessarily at how you are married. If you are married in community of property and you pass away, what will happen is that you are only allowed to distribute your half share of the joint estate. So if you have a will, whatever you put in your will, it will be only your half share that you can put in your will for. If you die in this state, which means you do not have a, a will in place, what will then happen is each spouse will then each get their half share of the, of the joint estate before they will be looking at distributing the deceased estate accordingly. So that's an of in community of property. Out of community of property, As we said you have your separate estates you don't have to think about the joint estate and just to get back to the on the question now is that with that in place is with interstate succession they look at whether there is a surviving spouse so if there's only one surviving spouse and you are married out of community of property that surviving spouse will still inherit in terms of the interstate succession so if you do not want your spouse to inherit for some other reason you will have to make sure that you do have a will and just in that case as well you you, you have to specifically say who must inherit you can't just have one will that says if i if jellica and i were married and out of community poverty and i don't want jellica to inherit anything i can't just go in my will and say i don't want jellica to inherit and leave it at that because they're going to struggle with distributing my estate because who do i want my stuff to go through because there's no instruction so the main purpose of a world is to, to put out to set out who must inherit your stuff so i don't have to specifically exclude jellica as my wife i can just include matabiso for example and say when i pass away matabiso must inherit my entire estate so jellica will then inherit nothing because i have a world which says matabiso must inherit anything i hope that answers it a little bit
1: makes it a bit clearer Okay, so uh, the next question, if I'm married in terms of customary law, but it's not registered at home affairs. Do I need to get an, uh, a divorce decree if we decide to separate? And if it's necessary, do I just mention it in the summons or do I first need to apply to the high court to get the marriage recognized? So we're married in terms of customary law and, and we want to get separated. We need a divorce decree or do we first, uh, mm. do we need a, a divorce decree uh, and then do we just mention it as summons or do we first apply to the high court to get the marriage recognized
2: so as we said earlier on that the failure to register a marriage does not invalidate that customary marriage so that marriage customary marriage will be a valid marriage and as the customer recognition of customary marriages act does say that for this marriage to be end it must be done in, in terms of the divorce act and the formal divorce must be done so you don't have to first recognize that marriage for it to to go through a divorce, um, but it might might be possible that some of the other one of the spouses will come and say, but this marriage was never valid, and then you'll have to go through the process of proving that this marriage was valid. Whereas this would not have been an, a big of an issue if you registered it way before, um, you know, or just after the marriage was entered into. Any other questions that we haven't addressed yet, Uh There
1: was one about uh, lobola. What so? What happens if lobola is not paid in full? is there a valid marriage that then comes into being because uh, you know i mean a lot of families uh they'll decide to set the lobola amount uh, at say 40k and then only 15k mm. of it gets paid so then you know then they and then later on you know then they have the celebration and all of that mm. but the lobola is not paid in full what happens then yes. i think that's it's quite a common question it happens quite a lot mm-hmm. um, so i think yeah
2: so it's one I see a lot of jokes always on social media where where they say attorneys always start their answers with it depends. So don't don't kill me now, but I'm gonna start the answer with it depends. Um so <laughs> it depends on the different cultures as well. So for some cultures, you know, Lobola is not considered to be one of the main requirements for the valid marriage. Um, or that it dealing while they went into the negotiations, they might have said that, you know. Whether the lobola was paid in full or not will not actually impact the validity of the marriage in terms of the customs and traditions. t-shirts. So in that instance, it, it, it's an either or question, or either or answer actually, because it is possible for the marriage to be considered invalid because the lobola was not paid in full. But it is also possible to say that, you know, it was at least negotiated and agreed upon and they are continuing to pay it in terms of the necessary agreement that's in place so the marriage can be valid and i, I know that there are some court cases i think the high court that specifically said that although the marriage although the labor was not paid in full um it does not invalidate the, the the customary marriage but again it depends on the circumstances so that's why i'm saying i'm starting off my answer with it depends because you'll have to go back at what are the customs and traditions of the bilateral when they entered into this marriage underwater agreement.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think the main problem is that we have a lot of court cases that say different things when it comes to customary mm. marriages. So it's always depending on the facts of the matter. With the accrual system, what will happen at the end of the marriage if Mr. X during the marriage paid for Mrs. X's debts that existed before the marriage was entered into? So they married with the accrual system out of community of property so what happens at the end of the marriage is mr x during the marriage pays for mrs x's debts that existed before the marriage
2: was entered into so it's separately stage. so how i would consider it is so you, what you what you can do is when you get married you can always go back and to look at what did you guys agree to when you entered into this anti-nuptial contract are there certain liabilities that might have been excluded or assets that are excluded as well so that's the first place to go and look at but one thing that you can take into account in this aspect as well is that now Mr X paid this debt out of his own accord there was no duty on him to pay this so it can be considered as a gift Um, and in some instances some gifts can be deducted and some cannot so it's all quite complicated as I said the example we went into and now it's quite basic So um, what I will do, Louvo, is I'll just go into a little bit more detail after this webinar and I'll get back to you with a more detailed answer. But it is possible, um, in in some instances, to maybe claim back those gifts as well. Donate, do you have anything to add on this, Jelie? That's quite a complicated question. Yeah, it
1: is. It is. Uh, Can you sue a person for breach of promise? you know, we're engaged and he broke off the engagement, can I sue him for breach for breaching his promise to marry me?
2: Mm. Jerica, you maybe want to take this one.
1: Um, okay,
0: George. Yeah, basically the simple answer is in the past you could sue for breach of promise um, because of hurt feelings, etc. But now um you can't really sue for breach of promise. However, if the engagement is broken off and, and one of the parties decide to break off the, the engagement or cancel the wedding the other party can or may pay for things that, of course, that um, she or he may have incurred in planning of the wedding. Maybe they booked a hall or they booked caterers, but then again, it does depend on what was agreed to between the uh, between the parties. So you can't really sue for hurt feelings because the engagement was broken off, but you can sue for, for costs um, and it will depend on what was agreed to between
1: the parties.
2: That's a good okay. answer, Jelica. I think that's it then, Matabis. Um,
1: Thank you, goodbye to everyone.
2: Thanks everyone. Bye. It takes
1: years to build a business that sustains a family and is worth passing on. At Sandy Spring Bank, we work closely with clients to provide the financing, cash management, and deposit products necessary to grow a business. So your life's work will continue to prosper once it's in someone else's hands. We believe real banking is a conversation. Let's talk about your business. Visit sandyspringbank.com/business. Credit products offered by Sandy Spring Bank.